0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Keiko New Energy, the fastest-growing solar inverter company in the Americas. Keiko has been in business for more than 100 years, and has been making superior German-quality PV inverters since the 1990s. In fact, it's been manufacturing many of them right in San Antonio, Texas, since 2013. With a wide range of residential, commercial, and utility-scale inverters, Keiko works with developers and installers in every corner of the solar market. Making it the preferred brand across the US and throughout the Americas. Learn more about Keiko's superior quality and service at Keiko-Newenergy.com. That's Keiko kaco newenergycom From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. to bet a lot of you are listening to us on a bus right now. I know many of you listen while you commute. And after all, there are more than 70,000 transit buses in the U.S. alone. But I'm willing to bet your bus, if you're on one, is not electric. Only 1% of the transit fleet runs on electricity. Our guest is out to change that. We're talking to Ryan Popple, the CEO of electric bus maker Proterra, about his plan to kick diesel out of the transit bus fleet. He's also got a very compelling career path that brought him from the Army to Tesla to Venture Capital and eventually to Proterra, and we'll talk a bit about that as well. Then in the second half, renewables are becoming the, quote, new normal in the U.S. We will take a glimpse at two important reports that put the current clean energy boom into perspective. Catherine Hamilton with 38 North Solutions is in San Francisco this week. Coincidentally, at the headquarters of Proterra, so Catherine, you're f- you're fully immersing yourself for this show, huh?
1: Absolutely, and Ryan gave me a magnificent tour of the plant here, so uh, I'm I'm all in now.
0: Jigger Shaw is in New York City, where he's probably looking out the window at the same winter storm that I'm looking at. Yeah.
2: Oh, it's awesome! I've got photos of my little guy uh, rolling around in the snow in his snow pants. <laughs>
0: Before I introduce our guest, I have a quick housekeeping item. GTM has a conference coming up that you should know about. It is right around the corner on March 8th and 9th in San Francisco called California's Distributed Energy Future. We've got top regulators, VCs, utilities, and distributed energy companies all in one place talking about what's next for the country's most vibrant and innovative market. Energy Gang listeners get a 10% discount on checkout. Just use the code Gang all one word, energy gang, when you register at greentechmedia.com slash events. That's greentechmedia.com slash events. And you'll also find details about all of our upcoming conferences. Okay, let's say hello to Ryan Popple now. Ryan is the CEO of Proterra, an EV bus manufacturer based in the Bay Area. And the company produces those buses in South Carolina. But Ryan joins us from the West Coast, where he's plotting dominance of the transit world. Welcome to the show.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: You've got some interesting roots that are worth uncovering here. So if I have this correct, you were active four years in the Army. You were deployed in the 2003 Iraq invasion as a platoon leader, and later you actually led fueling convoys. I've talked to a ton of people in the military who eventually get into this field, and many of them have said it was seeing firsthand the complicated logistics of transporting fuel in the battlefield or for like forward operating bases that woke them up to the need for alternatives. Was that the case for you?
3: Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I had an aha moment doing um, convoy security more, more broadly um, spending some time in the Middle East, especially in the military, just gives you a sense of how complex the region is, how volatile the region is. So, you know, our, our, our division deployed into Kuwait and then, um, and then crossed into Iraq in early 2003 and just seeing what Kuwait is like in its proximity to some pretty unstable parts of the world and also seeing what that inter- energy infrastructure looks like in person when you can literally see the oil tankers heading out of um, Kuwait and then uh, down into the Persian Gulf. And also seeing U.S. troop ships and heavy equipment ships moving in in the opposite direction. It's a pretty pretty stark visual as to how complicated energy can be when you need to move it all around the world. I never planned to do convoy security. It wasn't a career path I, I chose to go into. I was an armor officer, so you tend to uh, command vehicle units. And my first job was as a tank platoon leader. And that's a... That's one of the coolest jobs you can have in the whole world. I had four Abrams tanks that um, that were in my platoon. Unfortunately, I got promoted right before the war in Iraq started, and that's when I got moved into the support platoon leader role. So instead of having four 60-ton killing machines that are almost invulnerable, I had trucks, and we used those trucks to escort vehicles, to move fuel, to move prisoners, and we were on the road all the time. And so you, it, it was an interesting journey. To start in tanks, which tend to be the, the the front edge of the battlefield, and then have to figure out how to keep them rolling. It's it's dangerous work. Um, I was fortunate, but, you know, I nothing happened to me over there. But if you look at the casualty rates, uh, running convoys is a is an extremely risky job. Um, the insurgents tend to understand that that is that is where they should focus their efforts because. A smart insurgent does not want to take on a tank or an infantry platoon. They want to take on the bullets and the fuel that enable that platoon to fight. So when I came back from the Middle East, I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to do um, after my military career. And I just couldn't shake the thought that energy was something that would be worth spending my career on.
0: So then you went to business school. And after that, you ended up at Tesla as a very early employee. What impact did that have on your view of the transportation world?
3: So when I, when I was looking at Tesla, I, w- I was also looking at opportunities in alternative energy transportation, like biofuels and hydrogen. And I still remember it was, I, w- I was on the phone with, um, with Tim Wenzel, who at the time was the head of HR at Tesla. And he was trying to explain to me why what they were doing with electric vehicles made a lot of sense. Um, and we were talking on the phone while I was driving my car. And he mentioned that the infrastructure for electric vehicles is much simpler strategically than these, these other approaches to try to develop alternative, uh, alternative fuel for transportation. I looked out my window and I could see the transmission lines around me from the energy sector, and that was kind of the light bulb moment for me. Even in 2007, electric vehicles could make a lot of sense because fundamentally the energy infrastructure already existed, and what you needed to do is build a great product and then solve what I would call the last meter infrastructure problem, which is basically connecting the grid to the vehicle. But that's a much easier problem than creating a national pipeline network for biofuel or hydrogen, and then figuring out how to distribute it.
0: So that brings us to Proterra. After Tesla, you went to the well-known VC firm Kleiner Perkins, where you were a board observer for this young startup electric bus maker. And you eventually became the CEO because the company needed a turnaround after having trouble selling its buses to municipalities. You said in one interview that it was the company you most fell in love with. Why did you love it so much, even though it had fallen on such hard times?
3: Yeah, so my my fascination with Proterra really started even before Kleiner was invested in the company. We were doing some research on other sectors within industry that were going to be disrupted by the emergence of low-cost electric vehicle drivetrains. And we, we kind of define that technology as everything from, from the battery pack to the, the electric motor. So basically, the thesis was cheap batteries are probably going to change a lot of other industries as well. And what early venture investments can we make to get behind companies that represent where this market is going versus where it is today? So. As part of our research, we visited a bunch of different companies and a lot of industrial applications. I mean, almost anything that runs on diesel or gasoline, you can start asking, why shouldn't it be electric? We found a number of companies that were starting to move into transit, school bus, city bus, and we were really fascinated with Proterra. For me, what really sort of set the hook is I went to their very first commercial deployment when, it was when they shipped three vehicles to Foothill Transit in Southern California. Foothill Transit operates a fleet of around 350 buses and it covers parts of LA County, Orange County, and San Bernardino County. The thing that was so remarkable to me about it, especially having come out of Tesla, where we were selling cars for $100,000, was that the people who showed up to learn about this electric bus, in, from my perspective, there was not an electric car that they were going to be able to afford in the next 10 or even 20 years. A lot of the people who showed up wanting to learn about these new electric buses that Foothill had deployed, they couldn't afford a new car or a used car, let alone a new car. So this was a non-driving market. You saw students, you saw senior citizens, you also saw people from uh, the disabled community that need alternative forms of transportation. And what I loved about it is that electric vehicle technology is the is the coolest way to get from point A to point B anyone who's ridden in a well-engineered, well-manufactured electric vehicle, you fall in love with it. It's smooth, it's quiet, it's powerful, it's high-tech. And what Proterra was doing was saying, let's take the most advanced vehicle technology and let's put it into the base of the pyramid, into our transportation infrastructure that everyone has access to. I always thought that Proterra had the right idea. And I thought the same thing about Tesla when I joined in two thousand and seven. the The right idea and being able to grow a business are two very different things. And sometimes the entrepreneur or the founder that has a great idea isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily have the skill set to grow a business from one million dollars to a hundred million dollars in revenue or to a billion in revenue. So when the board decided to make some changes to the management team and really focus on a team that could grow the company, I thought it was a really good fit for what I had experienced in at Tesla from 2007 to 2010. Those were probably some of the toughest early years at Tesla. The kind of honeymoon was over with the investors. The company was really struggling to get the Roadster into production and make money on it. And it was the blocking and tackling of building a technology business. So when the, the board asked me to, to step into the role, I, I really didn't have to think too much about whether or not I thought Proterra could be a success, it really was a question of do I want to do another five years of venture capital or do I want to go back into an operating environment like I experienced at Tesla?
2: So Ryan, I um, worked at the Clean Cities program for DOE in 1998 and we were talking about electric buses back then, we were talking about how they'd be cost effective once gasoline and diesel crossed two dollars a gallon because back then it was like 97 cents and and we're talking about all the health impacts etc i mean fast forward sort of 20 years later almost and you know we're sort of hearing the same pitch right i mean what's different now than was the case back in
3: 1998 i'd say that the primary difference is in 1998 there was no electric vehicle industry other than maybe golf carts whereas today you're seeing thousands of advanced electric vehicles ship every month in the United States, Um, Europe, China as well. So what that has created is a supply chain. When you introduce a new product, you can't reinvent every single thing about the product. You have to stand on the shoulders of previous innovation. Otherwise, it's just too capital intensive and too daunting. So objectively speaking, I'd say the biggest difference between 20 years ago and today, is 20 years ago you could not economically or technically store energy on a vehicle. You probably had a number of, of other issues as well. Uh, lightweight materials weren't as readily available and electric motors weren't as high performance. There are, there are a lot of things today that indicate that the time has come and that the, the market is really moving forward with this. Part of it is just the, the volume and the interest we're seeing from cities. I think other than maybe catenary overhead trolley buses, you you probably had no interest from cities in the late 90s to go towards electric vehicle technology. Today, we are talking to virtually every major city.
2: Yeah, and I'm not disagreeing with that. But back then, I mean, we did have big rollouts of fleets in Louisville, Kentucky, and some other places back in the 90s. But but I think that what we found was that, you know, like now I'm hearing a lot of complaints from people saying, well, now that diesel has gone down from $4 a gallon back down like, electric vehicles are harder to pencil again. Like, I'm just trying to figure out, like, I'm just trying to figure out exactly how does one justify being excited about rolling this out at the fleet level? Like, what is the argument that people use to say, now we feel like, instead of going CNG, which is what we were gonna do just three years ago, we're now
3: gonna go electric? Well, I mean, I can give you my opinion on it. I, I think it's also worth asking the fleets that are procuring electric vehicles or have stated that they're going 100% electric. So there are multiple fleets now in the United States that have said they're, they're going to transform their entire fleet to EV by 2030. Uh, you also have China that is that is going to transform its entire transit industry to electric. So you you have a lot of smart customers that agree that this is a good idea. And I guess the question is why? the economics are are very very powerful and you know as a as a business you know, I've been CEO of Proterra since 2014 and we watched the oil markets unravel and the price of oil drop dramatically so what's interesting though is ProTerra's demand for Proterra's product has skyrocketed as oil prices have come down so we are not going to market in the summer of 2008 when oil is $140 a barrel we've been successfully growing with oil between 20 and $50 a barrel. The problem that oil has is while it has gotten a little bit cheaper, it's still volatile, so you can't bet on it being at this price forever. And the second problem is it can't beat semiconductor technology. And by semiconductor technology, I, I mean scaled, lights-out, automated manufacturing of batteries. So, yes, oil has dropped about 50%, but since 2010, batteries have dropped 70%. We're, you know, we're below the threshold where the Department of Energy thought this made sense in light duty vehicles. Um, and in a heavy duty application, the advantage of electric is even better. So if you get down to really simple numbers, or if, if you were asking me whether or not you should buy an electric bus and you needed me to prove it from a finance perspective, I wouldn't need a spreadsheet. We'd probably just use a whiteboard. And I'd say, how many miles do you drive your bus a year? You'd probably drive it between 30 and 40,000 miles. That's clue one. Buses are four times the utilization of cars, so you are four times more leveraged or short fuel than a car. Then I'd ask you, well, how efficient is your bus? Probably gets four miles to the gallon, so that's clue number two. Buses are the least efficient vehicle on the road. So the simple math there, 40,000 miles a year, four miles per gallon, you've got to buy 10,000 gallons of diesel fuel every year for every bus. Now, if you're the fleet, if you're New York City, you have 4,000 buses. So just the logistics and the expense and the risk of procuring 10,000 times 4,000 gallons of fuel per year, it's just a massive um, financial risk and headache. But then when you get into the economics, if you only get four miles a gallon, if diesel is two bucks a gallon, you need 50 cents of diesel for every mile that you drive. An electric bus, which is uses 80% less efficiency or less energy per mile than a diesel bus it only needs about 2 kilowatt hours per mile and that number's falling we've been steadily squeezing more miles out of the same energy for this type of product so 2 kilowatt hours average industrial rate of 11 cents some of our customers procure energy for 4 or 5 cents because they're tied into a municipal utility so now you're looking at 10 to 20 cents a mile versus 50 to 70 cents a mile in fuel. So for most of our customers, for every mile that they drive the electric, they make about 50 cents. And if you're driving 10, mi- or 40,000 miles a year, it's $20,000 a year. Um, the maintenance savings are also really significant. Making a truck engine do stop start driving in the, in the urban environment, whether that truck engine is running on diesel or natural gas, it breaks down a lot. So NREL did a study of our vehicles at Foothill Transit, and they found that even with our first generation of technology, our drivetrain system was three times more reliable than a brand new natural gas engine.
1: So um, what impressed me when Ryan took me on the bus that they have here, um, I'm a big bus rider. I don't live near the Metro, so I take the bus every single day. And I got on his bus and it was just like the bus I take except that I could find a seat. Um, and and in, in what struck me was, you know, while the inside, it's, it's gonna look the same, it's gonna look like a typical bus that a lot of people ride on every day in cities. Um, the material that it's made of was so different. The, f- the fact that there wasn't going to be an odor when you're riding the bus, that the air quality was going to be greatly improved and that the noise, there just would not be noise from it. These are all really compelling. And I think for city planners, especially um, beyond just the, the economics, there are so many other planning decisions that can revolve around having these electric buses.
3: Anyone who has flown into a city Arrived at an airport and then walked out of that airport and gotten on the typical rental car bus can appreciate how bad of an experience most diesel buses are. In fact, there are airports where you fly in and the the arrival level is the lower level. So these buses are pulling in and the diesel or the natural gas emissions are just hanging in that uh, in that space. And that's your that's your first impression when you fly to a city. You walk out of that airport and you're confronted by the noise and the emissions of heavy-duty vehicles. Cars aren't that bad; they're they're not very loud. The we have focused on tailpipe emissions in the U.S., so cars typically are not that dirty. It's the buses and trucks that are really nasty. But then when you get on that vehicle, if you're unfortunate enough to sit at the at the way back of the rental car bus or a city bus, you're sitting next to what's effectively a genset. It's like having a Caterpillar diesel generator running, because they're about the same displacement. Anyone who had to sit next to a diesel gen set and do their job or try to talk on the phone, you know, it's impossible. So you're um, you're hit with noise, vibration, harshness. There are fugitive emissions that you can smell in the vehicle. It's a 125-year-old approach to moving people. An electric bus is an incredibly different user experience, and it's a, in a lot of ways, it's, it's what the It's what the future of transit should be if we were capable of delivering it. We sometimes ask ourselves, well, if we could wave a magic wand, what would surface transport be like or what would a city be like in 20 years? I would hope that we are talented enough to have a model where the prime mover of people in a city is not loud and polluting and um, and and. And difficult to even have a conversation inside of that vehicle.
0: So you pretty much design everything in house from the battery packs to the powertrain. What did you learn from your time at Tesla uh, that like feeds into your in-house design and your broad design philosophy? Are you applying anything from your days at Tesla to what you're doing at Proterra?
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question. And in fact, when when I looked at taking on the the CEO role at Proterra, I asked the board a number of questions about what their philosophy was gonna be for this company. Proterra had done a lot of things really well, really smart. So I felt like the starting point for this company from a a product architecture perspective was, was very good. And this wasn't a case where we needed to pivot or go in a different direction. About the only major strategic change I made to the company is we stopped doing a fuel cell version of our vehicle we had taken orders for a small number of fuel cell vehicles. We built a handful of them. And when I looked at the numbers, it really didn't make a lot of sense compared to where EV was going. So about the only thing that I disagreed with strategically and changed was said, we're gonna put all of our focus on building the best battery electric transit bus in the world and we're gonna stop doing anything else, including fuel cell vehicles. Um, in, In terms of what I learned previously working in the EV industry, Some of the things that proterra got right number one don't do a converted electric vehicle so if you are an oem and you're trying to take an existing internal combustion engine vehicle and you're trying to turn it into an electric vehicle that's the wrong answer that's like trying to convert a dinosaur into a mammal way too many of the subsystems are different you know the the product is not going to survive that surgery so don't don't frankenstein an existing product and and expect that it's going to be a good ev you're going to end up with a product that's too heavy, that doesn't have good driving performance, and um, is too expensive. So you won't be able to um, you won't be able to offer a compelling price to market. So I love the fact that Proterra's approach is a purpose-built vehicle. I love their focus on lightweight materials, as our CTO Gary Horvat often says or, or reminds me of: force equals mass times acceleration. So if you're trying to reduce energy consumption per mile, lightweight the vehicle, and our biggest component of the vehicle the body is carbon fiber and composite so we have thousands of pounds of advantage when we go up against steel or even aluminum buses so you know it when you're when you're designing a great ev product some of the fundamentals are start from scratch you don't have to reinvent tires and and, um, axles per se but you cannot delete the combustion parts of the vehicle drag and drop the electric parts and think that's going to go well. That, you know, that's like converting a Prius into an EV in your garage. It works, but it's not a product. And then the second thing is that lightweighting is the, the the core of great EV engineering. You know, and then some other lessons, we, um you have to, you have to be careful about assuming what the supply chain can provide, especially in an early market. So I asked the board if they would be comfortable increasing the investment in R&D and technology development, because I didn't want to be constrained by what the supply chain could provide us. And one area in particular that I thought was not ready to, to provide an excellent product at a great price was battery pack systems or energy storage systems. You can buy battery packs, you can buy modules, but you, you tend to buy something that's not really a good fit for exactly what you're doing. So if you can get the right talent together, if you can afford to do it, you should you should vertically integrate around the key subsystems of your vehicle, especially if the industry is not ready to give you what you need. And so I I would say that the accomplishment that I'm most proud of is the development of our long range vehicle. When when I started at Proterra, I think our maximum range was 50 miles. Last summer we drove a vehicle 603 miles in a single charge, and I didn't design that energy storage system. The only thing I did was was helped hire and fund a phenomenal team of engineers, including folks in Greenville, South Carolina, um, and in the Bay Area in California, where we've combined Bay Area high tech development with automotive ex- expertise. And so I, I'd say, you know, having the courage to build versus buy on some of these systems, a lot of that came out of what I saw at Tesla.
2: So let's shift the conversation a little bit towards sales. Um, I mean I know that you've got a backlog of, you know, 300 or so buses and you know that's extraordinary it's about a half a percent of all the buses operating in the country today and but it does seem like your sales process is long you're sort of waiting for municipalities to get free funding from the transportation bill which is sort of delayed and then they use that money to apply as grant funding towards your buses and i mean explain how all of
3: that works and maybe how you think you can improve that well we we certainly wouldn't want to accelerate the sales cycle at this point because we are racing to keep up with the demand for the product this this market is a is a capex market so we're selling things that are expensive so if you're selling airplanes if you're selling trains if you're selling roads if you're selling buses you're you're basically in the infrastructure market so our sales cycle is is not that different from a Boeing Airbus Bombardier. And you know, I tend to not try to think about or I tend to not try to spend too much time changing the way a market works. A market tends to work a certain way for a number of good reasons. So we have a long sales cycle in our market, but the reason for that is it requires thoughtful planning to deploy transit assets. You know, we can we could go into a transit agency and we could give them a great sales pitch. But no one says, great, I'll take five, drop them off tomorrow. There's a lot of planning and logistics that go into buying even a diesel bus or a natural gas bus. So the way the, the nature of the industry is a thoughtful, planned out sales process, probably not that different from utility scale solar. So the, the, that's the downside, you know, it's, it's not as fast as downloading mobile apps, but nothing is. Um, the upside is it's predictable and it's big. So we can put a sales leader on a project and they can bring in two or three deals a year and you could say, well, that, that's terrible. How are you possibly going to build a business if your sales force, if, if someone sells only three customers a year? Well, when a customer buys 25 electric buses for $750,000 a piece, the sales force leverage is phenomenal. And we don't have to, our, our customers are sophisticated. We don't have to teach them how to use buses. they, They know how to run a transit system they typically know how many units they need and they typically buy one to two years ahead of when they need them so you know really for us it's an organizational problem um i i want to push back a little bit on the the idea that our customers apply for uh, federal money and then they wait and then they get free buses this is an infrastructure market so when you think about rail or bus or roads there is not we as a country have decided to publicly fund infrastructure because there really isn't a good private sector model to transport the elderly, disabled veterans, community college students. So we we subsidize things like bridges, roads, airports, ports, trains, buses. So what our customers do is they apply for what's called formula funding. They can use that funding for all sorts of different infrastructure. They can use the same money they spend on our product for diesel buses. So there's about... I'd say roughly 2 to $3 billion of formula funding for, per year that, um, that helps to support the rollout of about 5,000 buses a year. What has happened in our market is we're priced basically at parity to diesel hybrid right now without a subsidy. Diesel hybrid is about 24% of new purchases in our market. CNG is another 24%. So when you add in CNG's infrastructure cost, electric is – as affordable or cheaper on an upfront investment basis than a fleet of CNG vehicles, so I'd say roughly 40% of this market right now today can buy our product without a subsidy, and that's the result of us reducing the price of the product and the cost structure of the product. A couple of years ago, our product was a million dollars a bus. It was a little bit less expensive than a fuel cell bus. Today, a fuel cell bus is 1.3 million dollars, and a an EV. Transit bus is $750,000. So, one of the reasons I'm so confident about where this is going is I just get, got back from visiting battery suppliers in a lot of different countries and reviewing their product roadmaps and looking at their competitive quotes. We're already beating CNG and hybrid today on the economics, and that's 2017 battery pricing. You start rolling in 2018, 2019, 2020, this is only going to get worse. So, you know. We are, we are focused on growing as fast as we responsibly can. Um, our goal is to make sure that no one has to buy a diesel bus 10 years from now.
2: Yeah, but then make a prediction for me, right? So it, let's say there's whatever, 3,000 new buses shipped out every year, 4,000 or so. And so, you know, when does a material, a number of those turn electric? Let's call it a quarter of those every year turn electric. I'm going to pile in here. I've
0: read that You think diesel, diesel hybrid, and compressed natural gas buses will basically be phased out of new sales in transit by 2020, and that diesel bus manufacturers are likely to go extinct sometime in the next decade. What leads you to believe that the transit sector is facing stranded
3: assets, as you call them? Well, there will be stranded assets if companies aren't agile you know when i listen to the earnings calls for heavy duty vehicle manufacturers the public markets are already starting to ask them what's your plan for electric and what's your plan for autonomous it really is a question for the incumbent manufacturers are they going to evolve or are they going to make carriages until they turn the lights out we could look at china as an example china is not a good market for building diesel buses anymore and it took about 10 years from the beginning of building some rudimentary electric vehicles to today. But electric buses are quite prevalent in China, and that's the largest bus market in the world. The the second largest is the United States. So I don't think it's crazy to say that the U.S. may follow a similar path that China has, especially given that the U.S. has better electric vehicle technology. So we're actually better at this than any other country in the world. The other thing I'd look at, and I think it's quite encouraging, is the heavy duty vehicle sector and transit in particular has been quite successful at implementing more efficient technology when you have to buy 10,000 gallons of fuel per year you think about managing fuel costs every single year it's it is your number one or number two driver of your cost structure so it's the main thing that's why in the transit sector traditional diesel only has 50% market share Hybrid and CNG have already taken away almost half of its market, and electric is driving another wedge into it. Now, think about that for a second. If the light duty vehicle market was already 25% hybrid, 25% CNG, and 5% EV, oil would be $8 a barrel. We have made very little progress in the light duty vehicle market at getting categories like hybrid, CNG, or EV to really dominate. And one of the reasons is the, the economic value proposition in in many markets isn't sufficiently compelling. In this one though, I I think the question, I, I would almost turn it around to you and, and ask, what, what do you think would cause cities to want to continue to buy diesel buses in a world where electric buses may be at cost parity or cheaper? Unions. I think there's
2: a lot of people who like the status quo, right? They've got jobs, they know what they're doing. You're basically saying, well, the maintenance on our bus is only now, you know, tires and brakes that you're really familiar with, and everything else is um, new technology that you have to be retrained into. So what's interesting is
3: uh, one of the larger unions, the IBEW, was recently at um, a major transit agency in Southern California, and they were advocating for the cancellation of a 1,000-unit CNG order in favor of saving that capital to buy electric so i I wouldn't describe labor as a monolithic group you've got a lot of different types of skilled labor and electric vehicles require a lot of expertise that could provide a lot of jobs for um, certain labor unions um, or certain segments of skilled labor if you look at the infrastructure opportunity electricians utility companies utility supply there are as many winners as there are losers and there's money to be made so you know one of the things that that we've seen is that we can get banks to finance these vehicles so we sell the bus for the same price as a diesel bus and then we offer a battery lease a third-party bank will underwrite that deal because the economics are strong enough that they can make a adequate return on their money so i i tend to believe in economic gravity um i think if if unions were as anti-efficiency or green, um, as, as you imply, I think diesel buses would have 100% market share. But in fact, a lot of the skilled labor in the US has actually welcomed advanced technology like hybrid, because it's a great uh, training opportunity.
0: I co-opted Jigger's question there. So would you care to add a number to your prognostication?
3: Let's see. By 2020, I can give you a number of transit agencies that have already explicitly said they're not buying anything other than electric. So I, I, can, I can bottoms up and get to a pretty high number. Let's say 2020, I'm going to say a, a third of new vehicle purchases in the United States are going for the transit agencies are going to be EV. Uh, by 2025, I'll go 50%. By 2030, I'll say 100%.
1: I have a question, Ryan, about um, policy and whether or not this will impact that prognostication at all. So um, the heavy duty truck, CAFE or fuel economy standards were released in August of 2016 um, by EPA and NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation uh, Safety Administration. And those are setting the standards for fleets from 2021 to 2027. There's a very high chance that there will be a Congressional Review Act on those standards because they fall within the timeline for that to be Nixed by Congress, and I'm just wondering if that's going to affect the market at all. I mean, I know that the heavy-duty truck sector is already, you know, at risk of non-compliance, but I just wonder if that plays at all into the thinking of whether or not we can move forward in a real way with this market.
3: Well, you know, I think it's important to think about this in a global context. Um, the U.S. is a big, important market, but these technology drivers are global, and uh, the U.S. influences global trends but it doesn't control them or drive them unilaterally what i'm seeing around the world is that cities are struggling with pollution with air quality issues human health issues and they, and urbanization is accelerating so you know we talk a lot about population growth from an energy and sustainability perspective but the subset within population growth of urbanization is a more important trend in what's going on in energy and the environment In other words, the population is growing and it's urbanizing very quickly. So we're gonna double the number of human beings that live in cities in the next 20 years. So our our cities are gonna double in size. Every city around the world and every city in the United States wants to be less polluted. And the worst source of, and most controllable source of pollution is mobile source emissions from heavy duty vehicles. Now we're focused on the transit industry. And one of the reasons we're focused there is cities tend to control their transit fleets. So you don't have that principal agent problem. Maybe the federal government tells our trucking industry that they don't need to care about pollution. Um, I think what you'll see at that point is probably more regional enforcement because at the end of the day, it's a local community. It's a mayor who cares about toxic air quality. But you know, in a world where maybe the truck fleets are not forced to clean up, the city fleets can probably accomplish the same objective by controlling what they actually have ownership of, which is their their municipal transit fleets, and cleaning those up, so you know it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But when I look at the investments that are going into energy storage technology in the United States, in Europe, and in China, they vastly exceed the investments that are going into internal combustion engine technology. So you know, it, it really is a decision for the United States to make. Do we want to kind of ride out the last 10 or 20 years of combustion and then end up importing electric vehicle technology from China and Europe? Or do we want to have some growth from an industrial perspective? There there just there really isn't a way for internal combustion to to get to the level of energy efficiency of an electric motor. And from where I'm sitting, batteries are already good enough to win the entire transit market. So it it's already happened. Now it's an adoption curve that we work through. The future of
0: transit, according to Ryan Popple. Ryan's the CEO of electric bus maker Proterra. They are based in the San Francisco Bay Area and also have a manufacturing facility on the East Coast here in South Carolina. Ryan, thanks a lot. This was a fun conversation. We'll see how uh, some of those predictions play out.
3: Thank you. Really enjoyed it.
0: This is the moment of the show when we stop the tape and talk about our sponsor, Keiko New Energy. We are grateful to have Keiko as a sponsor. Keiko New Energy is one of the fastest-growing inverter companies in the Americas, a result of its commitment to quality, top-notch performance, and state-of-the-art technology. Keiko produces a robust portfolio of inverters for residential, commercial, and utility-scale applications. Leading developers continue to choose Keiko, because of its superior engineering and unmatched levels of technical support and customer service. Keiko produces its inverters for the Americas in San Antonio, Texas, where 20% of its employees are U.S. military veterans. Keiko is ready to serve any installer or developer looking to maximize their solar production. You can learn more about Keiko's inverter models and its commitment to quality at keiko-newenergy.com. Thanks for their support. This was a big week for stat lovers. On Monday, the Solar Foundation released its report on solar jobs, finding that one in 50 new jobs last year came from the solar industry alone. That was the fourth consecutive year that solar jobs grew by more than 20%. Then on Wednesday, Bloomberg New Energy Finance and the Business Council on Sustainable Energy released a fact book on the American energy economy, finding a continued decoupling of emissions from economic activity and new records left and right for renewables. So let's talk about both. The Solar Foundation report. Jigger. I I thought of you last night when I was listening to the, the show Marketplace, which is a very popular public radio business show. On the week that this news was released, this solar jobs report, Marketplace decided to run a big story on whether coal jobs would return under Trump and ignored the solar story. And this harkens back to your media criticism piece in September in which you lambasted Marketplace and other journalism outfits for the way they dismiss things like solar and continually favor industries like coal, even though there are far more people working in solar than oil, coal, and gas extraction combined. So did you notice that was absent from their reporting as well this week?
2: I did. I mean, I listened to Marketplace almost every day and I was um, disheartened because Andrea Lukey over the Solar Foundation told me that Marketplace was actually interested in the report. So um, I was disheartened to see that they didn't actually um, include it in the broadcast. But um, but you know I the 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 Bloomberg New Energy Finance report was pretty amazing that came out this week And the fact book. We really talked about how, as you've said many times, that we've sort of decoupled GDP growth from energy growth. I think the one thing that is important to bring forward here is this Javon's paradox, where you know there's this whole body of academic literature that shows that when people use less energy because of energy efficiency, then they end up buying more energy hog houses or bigger cars or doing stuff and then end up using more energy. I think what's happening here, which is fascinating, is that energy costs are going up by the same amount that people are reducing energy consumption because we have such old infrastructure that we've got to invest a lot of new money into the energy infrastructure. So energy costs are going up by 3.6% or 4% or 5% while you know energy usage is going down. So their bills are staying the same. All right. So that was a,
0: a quick transition into the fact book. And we might as well talk about that a little bit as well. And we can blend the two together. So this BNEF fact book was packed with some pretty impressive trends. And basically the top line takeaway from that was that energy productivity is getting better the American economy is using less energy to fuel growth. We're using record low coal, record high renewables and gas, and we're spending less on electricity as a share of our household income. And that's what you are referring to, Jigger. Um, well, prices are going up a bit. Consumers are using less, and they're they're devoting less than four percent of their total annual household spending to energy. Uh, that was a, a two thousand sixteen number, and that's the smallest share ever recorded by the government in in America, which is pretty remarkable. So you have all these records being broken. Um, and meanwhile, you know, renewables were supposed to kill the economy and make everything more expensive for consumers. But the combination of renewables, gas, and efficiency means that consumers are spending less on energy, at least in electricity.
2: Yeah, I, you know, there's a lot there, and so let me just unpack it for folks a little bit. Um, so since 1960, electricity rates only went up by 0.6 percent per year, which is far below the rate of inflation. It wasn't until around 1999, 2000, 2001, that electricity rates started spiking up. So they were going up by three, three and a half percent per year. Um, and so what happened was, you know, a raft of renewable portfolio standards were passed. A lot of energy efficiency portfolio standards were passed. And a lot of real like effort was put into getting the cost of energy down again. And one of the main things that we did was this, was was fund renewable energy. Renewable energy has had almost an imperceptible um, impact on the cost of electricity but has really done a great job of reducing wholesale power costs around the country because on the margins, um, you know, we've been able to provide zero um, incremental cost, zero variable cost um, energy to the grids. And so in the last three or four years, wind and solar have had an outsized impact on wholesale markets and have really done a great job of keeping the cost of electricity low. Um. So it's been, you know, sort of a win on all fronts, energy efficiency, um, keeping the cost of energy low and, um, you know, freeing up money to invest in infrastructure because we have an old transmission distribution grid that required more money.
1: Yeah, and it seems like investment has continued apace. So utilities are investing in additional reliability and infrastructure. And then also corporations are investing um, to move to, to more decarbonized um, uh, solutions for their own businesses, so it seems like investment is going forward, even with costs dropping. And policies have also helped, which is like pace financing, infrastructure of transmission, siting, the clean power plan, and CAFE standards have also been really important. You know, some of those may be shifting, and yet it doesn't seem like that is has dampened yet the the trend in investment.
2: Yeah, I mean, in 2016, 75% of all new capacity additions were not natural gas or fossil fuels, right? 75% of all new capacity additions were solar, wind, improved hydro, and improved nuclear, which is pretty damn
0: cool. And solar dominated for the first time, installed more capacity than wind or natural gas for the first time in history.
2: Over 50% when you count DG, because I think that um, EIA only counts um, utility scale, which is like 9,000 megawatts, but there was like another five megawatts Five gigawatts of of distributed generation that was added, I think. So it's just just extraordinary. And that's why
0: I set up this discussion with a look at media coverage, which you know I thought was actually quite lacking. So you had your usual reports from like uh, Chris Mooney at the Washington Post, you know, Vox, Green Tech Media, a bunch of trade journals. People are focused on many of the impressive stats coming out of coming out of these reports, but many of the other mainstream press outlets are completely ignoring this story. And I don't say that from an advocacy perspective because I'm talking about selection bias and uh, you can, you can, you know, look at this pretty straight and you don't have to take an advocacy stance on this and just say, you guys are ignoring one of the biggest stories of our time. And so it, it kind of flummoxes me that in a week that we had, Some of the most impressive stats ever posted by these industries um, in a very clear shift in the electricity sector, more clear than ever before, that outlets um, across the spectrum
2: are largely ignoring this story. Yeah, look, I think that's right. Uh, The one thing I would say is that I don't think our industry has done a good job of promoting what we've done, I mean, including like our elected officials on Capitol Hill. I mean, the folks who really love us should be touting this. I mean, Chuck Grassley should be talking about this, about how much you know new capacity was added in Iowa and Utah and other places. Um, and part of the reason for that is because, as you guys may know, there were large layoffs at First Solar and SunPower in the fourth quarter. Um, You know, as utility scale solar has sort of weaned off, they've laid off a lot of people that were working in those areas Um, and they were all hired into the DG sector, but those were outside of their company. And so I think they didn't want to highlight all the folks that they were laying off.
1: Yeah, there's also just a lot of other noise out there, Stephen, so I could see how this wouldn't get picked up. And in some ways, I kind of want us to keep our powder dry where where it comes to the politicians so that we can keep chugging along, keep investing, keep deploying, uh, keep lowering the price of clean tech and, you know, despite what they're doing.
2: But why would we keep the powder dry on that, Catherine? I mean, we have real champions on renewable energy in terms of Capitol Hill. Why wouldn't they want to tout their role in um, promoting extraordinary job growth. 51,000 people, one in 50 people in in 2016 were hired by the solar industry. Why wouldn't they want to tout it in their own districts?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that they should. And I think it's a huge positive news story. It's just that right now the tone is, is pretty confrontational up there. So I can see how this would have gotten lost in the noise. And hopefully when they go back home during their breaks, they will hear these stories and we'll be able to, to tell some good news and recognize that it's That's really beneficial for their local economy.
0: Yeah, that's right. There there are other things going on, aren't there? (laughs) Well, speaking of other things, let's tell our listeners something they don't know and hear some of the interesting stories that we're picking up in our daily lives. Catherine, what is yours this week?
1: Yeah, so I just wanted to give everybody a little bit of an update on FERC Um, The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, there are five seats that are always at FERC, three for the party uh, in charge of the White House and two for the minority party. Um, And while they're divided like that, it's not like a court where you you can stack it up with everybody in your party. They really do split it. Um, three and two, depending on who is in control of the White House. And it's not generally thought of as is um, as a very political organization at all. It's really a process uh, process agency. and it's and it's autonomous also. it has some autonomy. So right now, the acting chair is Cheryl Lafleur. Um, She came out of National Grid. She's one of the only um, commissioners who's ever come out of utility industry. So she really does understand that industry, which I find very helpful when I talk to her. She's always been very, very supportive of efficiency and demand response, and she really understands those markets very well. She's just the acting chair until... Um, The president then puts three, he's got three seats open uh, for GOP members and assuming one of those would then, would become the chair and she would then go back to being a commissioner. And then uh, Commissioner Honorable, her term expires in June of this year, but she that seat is a Democratic seat. So then Chuck Schumer would then you know put someone forth for that. And there's been a lot of discussion as to who could potentially be you know nominated by Trump. I don't even want to speculate. I've heard a lot of names, and some of them seem like they would be very competent people. But how do they get things done? Because there are only two commissioners. There's no quorum. So what they did was they they passed a rule when uh, Chairman Bay left that the director of the Office of Energy Markets and Regulation, who's Jamie Simler, um, who has been the head of Office of uh, Policy and Innovation. She's done a lot of different things. She was base chief of staff as well. She's there. And so she is going to be able to cast a vote on rate filings, to accept or suspend filings, to extend time for action in cases, to do waivers for uncontested filings. So she can weigh in so they can get some things done, because there are a lot of things that are out there in the public interest that have to get done, that you can't just do with two commissioners. So she's able to weigh in. And this, just for the folks who listen, shouldn't hold up at all the notice of proposed rulemaking on storage and aggregated distributed energy resources. That Those comments are due early next week, I think Monday. And... Um, That should not, because it's a proposed rulemaking, the staff will still be going through all of those filings. That'll still be progressing forward. So I think the way it stands now is things that are really um, highly contested are probably not going to be decided on, but sort of the way they're working, they've figured out a way around it where they can get um, this director to weigh in.
0: For those of you who don't speak FERC, um, (laughs) buried in that is a very important point here. We have two commissioners, Out of a five-member commission, Uh, without a quorum, they can't really approve anything. So a lot of developers, mostly gas pipeline developers, have applications sitting in a queue. They're waiting anxiously. Months will go by before their applications are approved potentially. uh, Very costly, and a lot of people are concerned. Is that a fair way to wrap up basically what you just said?
1: There are dozens of confirmations that have to go through before. I mean, I haven't heard nothing on when FERC would be up, but there's a lot that the Senate has to get through before they can even put anybody in place there, and we don't even have any uh, nominees yet.
0: Right. And I'm sure when we get some of those nominees, as you said, a number of names have been floated around. I've seen Barry Smitherman out of Texas, Neil Chatterjee out of, Mitch McConnell's office, will speculate or discuss some of those potential commissioners and what they would bring to FERC, which is um, an extraordinarily important agency in the electric sector and natural gas pipeline siting sector. Okay, good story. We'll keep our eyes on that one. And uh, Jigger, what is yours?
2: So um, I was looking at the data uh, in Europe and um, basically... Uh, Wind energy is now at 153.7 gigawatts in Europe onshore, which means that it's now um, 16.7% of all of the capacity, electricity capacity, not the megawatt hours, but just the capacity in Europe. So it's overtaken coal in terms of capacity um, as of this year, which is pretty phenomenal. And they're still investing extraordinary amounts of money on offshore. Um, so that number is going to keep going up, and I think it'll be the number one largest source of capacity by the end of the decade.
0: Nabbit, this is now the second time this has happened. I was going to talk about that report out of Europe as well. So thinking on my feet here, I guess um, I'll talk about the Ivanpah plant, which is uh, co-owned by NRG Energy, the former company of David Crane. And in March of last year, the Wall Street Journal asked bluntly, is Ivanpah about to shut down? If you remember, the CSP plant had been struggling to keep pace with the projected electricity production as part of its contract with PG&E, and it was burning a ton of natural gas. But now, according to media reports, I was reading some stories today and yesterday, plant operators say it's back on track. And I do know that they're burning a ton of natural gas, so more more than they they thought actually and california released data for 2015 and it was um you know the the pollution threshold for a power plant of that type was double what it should have been and then eia recently released some data showing that natural gas consumption was uh had increased throughout the first half of last year so we don't have fully up to date data but Anyway, an interesting time for Ivanpah for CSP shows the troubles that the the co-owners of that plant have gone through, but at least for now, it does not look like they will default on that contract. So, a good piece of news for the company, I suppose. Okay, that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. You can catch everything, every show that we've ever done on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, Overcast, NPR One, anything that you choose to listen to podcasts with. And um, you can go to greentechmedia.com for a lot of the stories that we cover and talk about. And we've got show notes there of all our podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at com. We take your show ideas into consideration. Catherine, enjoy your West Coast trip. Safe travels back to the East Coast.
1: Thanks so much. I can definitively tell you that any drought out here is over.
0: And uh, there's no drought of snow out here. So, Jigger, enjoy when you hang up. I'm sure you'll do business, but you should be outside rolling around in the snow.
2: (laughs) I do love snow. And this was one of the bigger snowfalls New York's had this year. So I'm going to enjoy it.
0: I'm going to go strap on the skis and head up north this weekend. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.